All right. Hello, Junior High Ministry. How's everyone doing? Awesome. Oh my gosh. I'm going to take this and hold this. Is that okay? Oh my goodness. So for those of you guys who don't know me, I mean, Keith just introduced me. My name is David, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it is so good to be here with you guys. It is so good on so many levels. Uh, like, past, like, uh, like Keith mentioned earlier, I used to be the youth pastor, but I was the youth pastor when there were like five junior hires. Can you imagine that? Coming to youth group, and there's just like five junior hires and like two high schoolers, and you just sit around and you stare at each other all the time. That's all it was. But by God's grace, I remember when so many, like, look, look at this. This is insane. You guys could like, I don't know, storm a small country, I think, with the number of people you have. And, uh, and so it's a blessing to see how much God has grown our youth ministry, and it's a blessing to see how much he's grown some of you, because I literally remember when some of you guys were born. I'm pretty sure I changed some of your diapers, which is kind of a bizarre thing to say before I preach. But I am so thankful uh, that you guys are here. There are so many things you could be doing on a Friday. Uh, there's so many other things you could be doing with your free time, but you're here. You're here to be with other Christians. You're here to grow in your love for God, to grow in your love for his word. And I'm so thankful that we get to look at God's word together tonight. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to get started, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the great blessing of being the church, uh, that we don't need to be Christians alone. We can't be Christians alone, uh, but you are so gracious to be able to call us to worship you together, to serve you together, to, to learn together, and to live life together. And God, now as we uh, look at your word and, and look at this incredible story about who Jesus is and what he calls us to do, we pray, Father, that you would grow our hearts in love for Jesus and that because of that great love, we would follow him with all that we are. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, how many of you guys have been to our youth retreat before? And I realized we didn't have one last year. And I know, I'm hoping, hoping someday soon you guys will... Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll let Keith uh, take care of the bomb that just exploded in the playground. Um, so, uh, so last year, you guys missed out on you know, a youth retreat, right? Because there was some other stuff going on in the world. It was hard to do retreats. Um, but one of the great traditions in youth ministry is the, is the youth and college retreat, okay? Where all the youth groups, all the junior hires, all the high schoolers, and the college students, so all those big, tall, scary people you saw walk past you into the room behind you, behind you. Um, the, you go away for like a weekend, and you have just like tons of time to hear from God's word and worship together, but there is one part of the, of the youth retreat that is just maybe one of the most epic, fun, exciting parts of it, and it is the games, so, how many of you guys competed in the youth games last time you guys were in youth retreat, okay? So, in case you don't know, the youth retreat, like, so everyone splits up into different teams. At least it's the way that I did it. So, if, some, if you end up doing something that's less fun than what I described, you can blame Keith for that, okay? But everyone splits up into teams, so you're like with junior high and high school and college students together, and you essentially, you're, that, that's your team for the whole weekend, and you compete for the whole weekend, and there are all these points and after a while, you know, you do all these crazy things. And if you win, if your team has the most points, then you get to be like the, the, the greatest team of that weekend. And I don't know if this is still, I don't know if this is still the case, but we used to do like these really, 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 really intense eating games. Um, and part of the reason we did these really, really intense eating games is because Elliot's dad and Shiloh's dad was the person in charge of the games. 
And this is before smartphones, so we couldn't record anything. So whatever happened to youth retreat stayed at youth retreat. And so we would have these like eating competitions where you would have to eat like a watermelon. Not just the, you know, the fruit, the good part of the watermelon, but like the rind of a watermelon, right? I think you had to eat as many hot dogs as you could. Uh, one time we brought up a durian. You guys know what a durian is? It is this spiky fruit that does not want to be eaten. It is, it is the stinkiest thing. It smells like a, like a tank of gasoline. Um, and so they brought up a durian once to eat it as part of this competition. Okay, I know you probably like a durian. Is that, yeah? King fruit? Is that the same thing? Oh, okay. Yeah, that could be it. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so there's all these things you have to do. Uh, I think one of the craziest games we did at a retreat once was it was a long, like, relay race where you had to kind of pass something from the beginning of the line all the way to the end of it. But the, the thing that you had to pass was a dead fish. And so what Uncle Jared did was he took a fish. It was, so everyone had a piece of string. And you had to take the string and you had to wind it through your shirt, okay? And then it kept going into the next person's shirt, like next to you. And it was like a dozen of you that would have this line going through your shirt. And then they took the fish and they put the, the string through the fish. And so you had to pass the, the fish like through your clothes, okay? And pass it to the next person. Whoever won this, you know, whoever could, you know, make it their fish all the way through was the winner, okay? And so, I don't know. I don't know what the games hold for you through retreat. I think things are probably tamed down, calmed down a little bit. But the question that came to mind all the time when people were playing this game was, is it worth it? Exactly. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to throw up at a youth retreat because you ate, you know, 15 hot dogs? Is it worth it to have a fish, you know, sliming its way across your shirt? Is it worth it to do all this stuff? And the answer was always yes. Because at the end of this, at the end, at the end of this retreat, and I don't know if this is still something, a thing, but there was this trophy, the golden trophy. And it is about, in my mind, it is like this tall, but in actuality, it's like this tall. And it has this like this gold plastic thing, and it's made out of a soda cup that I think Jared got from like a jack-in-the-box, and it's filled with flour that is older than all of you. And in the, at least when I was there, what we would do, if your team won, you got to sign the trophy. Okay, and this was like the greatest thing. You put your team's name on this trophy, the whole thing probably cost like 25 cents, but for us, it was totally worth it. Whatever it was that we asked you to do, if you won that year, it was totally worth it. No matter how hard it was, no matter how difficult it was, no matter how big the ask was, it was totally worth it. It was definitely not real cold, yet still worth it. So the question is when you're faced with something that is hard and difficult to do, how can you tell if it is worth it? And there's nothing that is harder or more serious that is going to be asked of you in life than will you follow Jesus with all of your heart? That is the biggest, most difficult, most important question that you will have to answer, that you have to answer even now. And the question will be, is it going to be worth it? So you guys are studying the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And in this section, in, in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, this is really the heartbeat of the Gospel. And Jesus, in the passages that Keith has been teaching through the past couple of weeks, he's given some really astounding statements about who he is, what he came to do, and what he asks of you. Right? You remember what he asked of you in the, in the previous passage. He said, if anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
Jesus is saying that if you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow me and live a life following who I am, you have to be willing to give up everything, even your own life if necessary, so that you can follow me. I mean, Matt, what other commitment in life asks that of you? Right? How many of you guys play a sport of some kind? Probably a few of you guys, right? So imagine, imagine you're trying out for like, there's a team that you, you know, I don't know, you're just checking it out and you're not sure if you're going to join the team. And, you know, the, the coach says, yeah, well, I'm really glad you're here, but, you know, if you're going to be part of this team, it's going to cost you everything. <laughs> everything. Your soul, your life, your body is all forfeit. It's going to cost you everything. You'll be like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I just want to choose like a game with like good snacks at the end of it. You know, but what other organization, what other group of people like do you hang out with where they're like, yeah, if you want to be part of this thing, it's going to cost you every part of your life. Your friends, your free time, your money, your, you know, your energy, it might even cost you your life in the most extreme situation. That seems really intense. And the honest truth is, is that maybe the way that you're looking at your life is it doesn't feel like it's that intense, right? Like you go to school, you play sports, you play video games, you're you know, thinking about how you get along with your siblings. But Jesus wants to cut through all of that, and he wants to say that the most important, life-changing, life-altering decision you have to make is whether or not you will commit your entire life to following him. Someone said that there's only one level to the Christian life, and it's the entry level, and it costs you everything. You guys are in a really important time of your life because for some of you, junior high might be the time where you decide for yourself how you want to respond to this call from Jesus. That was the case for me. I decided when I was in junior high that I wanted to be a Christian. I wanted to follow Jesus. And maybe you've heard all this stuff from Sunday school on, or maybe you've, this is the first time you're hearing this, and you're uncertain. You're not sure if this is what you want. You're not sure if this is what you believe or this is just what people around you believe or this is what your parents believe. And maybe you're not totally sure if it's worth it. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? And Jesus knows this. And he knows you too. So he knows everything that you're hesitant about. He knows all of your doubts and your concerns. And he wants you to know that while the decision to follow him may not be the easy one, it's always going to be the right one. And it's the better one. He wants to give you good reasons to follow him. Um, one of the things I love watching are trailers. Um, I, I love movie trailers. They get me really excited for the movies that are coming out. And um, that was one of the things I missed the most uh, throughout COVID was like, man, I, I can't wait to go into theaters again and watch movies. And sometimes when you see a trailer, for me at least, it can kind of make or break whether or not I see a movie right? Like there's some trailers like, so I, I hate scary movies. I just cannot stand them. And so if I'm in a theater and I'm watching a scary, every scary movie has the same kind of setup, right? This like, this ominous like chime music over the background, you know, these people that look just too happy, uncomfortably happy, you know, and all of a sudden like things go dark and things, you know, and, and everything gets quiet for a minute and then you know something's going to jump out and scare you. And I hate that stuff. So I'm a grown like 37 year old man. And when scary trailers come up, I close my eyes and I cover my ears because I cannot handle that stuff. I just, nope, I'm out of this. I'm not going to watch this movie. But if it's something like a Marvel movie, if there's something really, tons of action and things are blowing up, if bad guys get wasted, I'm all about that, right? So you seeing a trailer can make or break whether or not you want to see the final thing. Now, the trailer is not the movie. The trailer is just a sneak preview of what the movie will be. 
And Jesus, in the story we're going to read tonight, is going to give us a sneak preview. He's going to give us a trailer for things that are to come. And as you look at this trailer that he's about to show, what he's trying to communicate to you is, it is worth it to follow me. It's worth it to follow me. So go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. So there are four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark is the second one. Mark chapter 9. And do not be afraid to use the table of contents. That's why it's there. Or ask a friend. Mark chapter 9. Okay. Are we pretty much there? Good. Okay, Mark chapter 9. And we're going to start at verse 1, okay? So Jesus, he's talking to his disciples. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's making this promise that the people that are standing there are going to see the kingdom of God. They're going to see the full manifestation of everything that God promised and, and promised and is. And that's what the Jews were waiting for. They're waiting for this final eternal kingdom to come when God would make everything right. And Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to give you a trailer. I'm going to give you a sneak preview of what that's going to look like. And you're going to get a taste of the kingdom to come. And when you see this trailer, you're going to be convinced that it is worth it to follow me. And so let's keep reading in Mark chapter 9, start at verse 2. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So there's a lot going on in this story. But I think in this story, we get two reasons why we should follow Jesus. Okay, two reasons why we should follow Jesus. So the first, we should follow Jesus because of who he is. We should follow Jesus because of who he is. I think that depending on who you talk to, And who is giving you advice? Depending on who that person is, you should either listen to their advice or not listen to their advice. So I don't know if you guys realize this, but Keith is really smart. So in a former life, he was like an engineering kind of person, so he's really good at math, really good at math. And I 
and not. <laughs> so, so there have been times, I think, when like, we'll sit there and we'll kind of be working on something that requires math, and if Keith says, this is the answer to the math problem, this is the physics that goes into why this thing works the way it does, I'm going to trust him, because that's what he studied in college. He's just really good at math. And you should definitely not listen to me, because I study Dungeons and Dragons, which has math, but a different kind of math, okay? So what you, who you listen to is really dependent on who that person is. If they're trustworthy, if they are good at what they say, if they are a person of integrity, then you're going to trust them. So Jesus has just made this offer to you to follow him, to give up your life. And it really matters who he is. And if he is who he says he is, then we will follow him. So who do we see Jesus is from this story? The first thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus is God. Okay, there are three things here we see about Jesus. Jesus, number one, is God. Look at verse two. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So there's six days that pass after this whole conversation about who Jesus is and what he came to do, what he wants us to do. Then he takes his three buddies, his closest disciples, and they go up on the mountain. And look at the simplicity of this verse. Look at verse 2. He was transfigured before them. So the word transfigure, that's not a word we normally use, but it's the same word that we get the word metamorphosis from. And that's a word we definitely understand, right? Metamorphosis, this process of you starting off being one thing, and you go through this process of transformation, and it becomes something else entirely, right? That's what happens to a caterpillar. A caterpillar is a, just a caterpillar, right? And then it goes into a chrysalis, and it goes through metamorphosis, and it becomes a butterfly or a moth. What is the difference between the two? And why, is, why are moths gross and why are butterflies awesome? We'll never know, okay? But I, so when I was a kid, I remember I, had, I caught like a, a, like a little caterpillar in my backyard, and I had it in a jar, right, as we often do, and it started turning into a chrysalis. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm the most awesome naturalist in the world. I, I, I created this thing out of nothing. And I, it, it sat in this jar, and I thought, man, this is going to be awesome when this thing turns into a butterfly. And I sat, and then I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And months later, I, I, I finally realized that it had probably died. And the thing, and the thing was, it, it needed to go through this process of metamorphosis, otherwise it wasn't going to fulfill its purpose. And a metamorphosis is this complete change. And that's what happens here. Jesus metamorphosizes. He is transfigured. He goes through this radical transformation. Remember, at this point, what everyone sees on the outside is that he is a man. He is flesh and blood, just like the rest of us. The book of Isaiah said that he has no form or beauty that anyone should regard him. He just looked like a regular person. But he is transfigured. And all of a sudden, his humanity gives way to his divinity. And he becomes radiant. And he begins to shine with glory. And the change is so complete and so dramatic that even his clothes are shining. Can you imagine that? Like just standing around with your friends and all of a sudden one of their, their clothes just starts glowing like a neon sign? What a bizarre thing. And why is this happening? It's because Jesus is not just a man but he is fully and truly God. <clears throat> the disciples weren't being asked to follow just any human teacher, but God himself. And I know this is a really simple idea, probably one that you're really familiar with, but you can't be overly familiar with the fact that Jesus is God. Not just a nice guy or someone with some good ideas or a really important person in history. He was God. 
And this is God himself that is asking you to follow him, to give up everything to follow him. And if anyone has a right to ask that of us, it is God himself. So Jesus is God. That's the first thing we see about Jesus. The second thing we see about Jesus is Jesus is the point of everything. Jesus is the point of everything. So as if it wasn't bizarre enough that Jesus' clothes start to shine and he has the very divine radiance of God coming out from him, it gets even crazier. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So imagine, you walked up this mountain, all of a sudden, boom, this magic light show from Jesus starts happening, and then these two guys just pop out of nowhere. They just appear. And that's weird, right, if the people just appeared in front of you. But what's even weirder is that these are two dead men. It's Elijah. Elijah is the Old Testament prophet. And Moses, right, Moses, the man who delivered Israel from Egypt. These are two of the most important figures in Jewish history. It'd be like if you were a Laker fan, right, and like, I don't know, and like Magic Johnson appeared next to you and the ghost of Kobe Bryant appeared next to you. You'd be like, man, this is too crazy. And what happens in verse 5? Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So he is totally confused. Wouldn't you be if all this stuff was happening? He was terrified. And so Peter doesn't really know what to say. And he just kind of throws this option out. saying, you know, let's just camp here. This seems like a good idea. Like, I like both these guys. I like you, Jesus. Let's just make a tent. Let's just camp here. It'll be awesome. Now, what is going on? These are two of the most important people in the Old Testament. For Jews like Peter, James, and John, these were the heroes of their faith. They were the all-stars of the faith. What are they doing here on this mountain? Well, Elijah and Moses show up to show James and Peter and John and to show you that the whole reason why God had done everything in the Old Testament, why he sent prophets like Elijah, why he gave the law through Moses, everything that has happened in the Old Testament, everything that has happened in all of history, the whole point of it was to get to Jesus. They were just stepping stones on the path of history to get to Jesus. The point of Elijah and Moses showing up is to remind us that Jesus is the point of everything. Everything in history, everything in life is supposed to lead us to Jesus. It would have been tragic for Peter and James and John to think about all the years that they put into being faithful Jews was just about being Jewish, about going through all these religious rituals, but all of it was meant to point to Jesus. Imagine, for an instance, that I like to exercise, which is laughable. And imagine that I suddenly decided I wanted to get into marathon running. Now, if you guys have ever seen a marathon, which is like a race of like 26 miles, right? That's a long way to run. But one of the encouraging things for people as they're running these races is that a lot of times people will go and they'll stand on the sidelines and these sidewalks and they just want to cheer people on to motivate them to get to the finish line. Now, Imagine how silly it would be if I'm running this marathon, right, and I saw you because you love me. You're going to come and cheer for me, right, Elliot? You're going to cheer for me, right? No, okay, that's cool, whatever. And so imagine we're running this race, and I see all of you cheering for me, and I just stop in front of you. It's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're cheering for me. This is great. Let's just camp out and let's enjoy the sidewalk. Let's maybe take a break, and we'll go over here and get some pizza. You'd be like, no, that's ridiculous. 
The whole reason I'm here is to point you to the goal line. It's to encourage you to run farther and harder and faster to get to the final destination. And that's what Elijah and Moses in the Old Testament was meant to point everybody to. There is something that is greater that's coming, and that something is Jesus. It would be a shame. It would have been a shame for Peter and James and John to think that everything in their life was just about following the rules and being Jewish and listening to the Old Testament. But all of that was meant to point to Jesus. And it would be a shame if you thought that all being a Christian was about was just doing Christian stuff. That you being a Christian means that your family is Christian. Or that you being a Christian means that you just read your Bible. It's about going to church. It's about not cussing. It's about inviting your friends to youth group. It's about playing less video games. It's about doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And some of those things are good and important and right, but they're nothing if they don't point you to Jesus. He's the point of everything. And if you're not doing what you're doing for Jesus and because of Jesus, then you're missing the point of everything. So make everything you do in life a road to Jesus. The third thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus is all we need. Jesus is all we need. Look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So all of a sudden, they are enveloped in this cloud which signifies the glory of God. And the voice of God speaks out of the cloud and he says, This is my son. And you should listen to him. He's God. He's the point of everything. And because of that, you need to listen to him. And then as suddenly as everything appeared, it all disappears. And it's just Jesus and Peter and James and John. And it's such a simple statement. But I think it says a lot. It says they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. All of those other amazing things, the cloud, dead guys popping out of nowhere, the shining, radiant glory, all of those things were meant to give them a reason to trust Jesus, and they vanish. And all they're left with is Jesus. And they must have thought, wait, what about the tents? (laughs) What about, we need this glorious, powerful, radiant superhero Jesus. We need Moses. We need Elijah. We need the cloud who represents God's very presence. We need miracles and power and glory. But all they needed was Jesus. And I think that's what we're supposed to walk away with. The Christian life is a hard thing. Jesus is asking you to be willing to sacrifice anything and everything it takes in order to follow him and glorify him. So how in the world can you do something like that? But if you have Jesus, that means you have everything that you need. Imagine, just imagine for a minute, like what do you think your life would look like if you were to live sold out for Jesus? If the most important person to you was Jesus, if the most important thing you wanted to live for was his glory, like what would that look like? What would you have to give up? What would you miss out on? Maybe it means having to play fewer video games so you can spend more time in Scripture. Maybe it means saying no to your preferences, what you want, so you can sacrifice for what other people want. 
Maybe it thinks that you're going to believe certain things that the Bible says is true and other people are going to think that you're weird or bigoted or any number of things. And you might think, I don't know if I'll have enough. I don't know if I'm going to have enough strength, if I'm going to have enough courage, if I'm going to have enough resources in order to do this. But if you have Jesus, then you have everything that you need and you will have enough. So Jesus is all we need. But the story is meant to show us that the things we miss won't compare with having Jesus. To be a Christian is to have Jesus himself, and he's the point of everything in life. And if that is true, do you have everything that you need? So here's the second reason to follow Jesus. The first reason was because of who Jesus is. The second reason to follow Jesus is because glory only comes after suffering. Glory comes only after suffering. There are certain things in life that happen in a certain order. You guys know Pastor Wayne, right, the, the family pastor? Have you guys know anything, noticed anything different about him in recent months? Anyone notice anything different? Pastor Wayne got super buff. Have you guys noticed? I don't know if any of you guys are like watching the children's ministry videos um, like that we're, we were showing for our kids' ministries, but we started, you know, the pandemic doing these videos, and he just looked like a normal dude, right? And then he went to San Francisco for like six to eight weeks. And in that time, he went to some kind of boot camp or something like that. He came back and he was just like the Incredible Hulk. He was just super buff. And one of the videos, like you can definitely tell when it happens, he wore like his normal, the, the same blue children's ministry shirt that he'd been wearing, but he looked totally like all puffy and swollen in it because his muscles had gotten so big. And, and part of it, he just started working out a lot, right? Now, I also, my shirts have also gotten a little bit puffier and bigger, but not because I've been working out. It's because I've been eating a lot of bread, right? And, but, so what is, but how is it that Wayne, you know, Pastor Wayne got so buff in that short period of time? It's because he worked out, right? There's an order to this, right? He doesn't wake up one day and think like, oh man, where do these muscles come from? It's because he's putting in the work, right? We have this saying, right? There's no pain, no no gain, right? You know this, right? There's an order to things that happen. And there's an order to the Christian life as well. And the order is this. Now, everyone look up here. Suffering first, glory later. Suffering first, glory later. That is the order of life for the Christian. Glory comes. It will come. God promises that everything is going to be okay. But it only comes after suffering. Jesus has just given his disciples a sneak preview, this trailer of what the final kingdom of God will be like when he's transfigured before them. <clears throat> and he is pointing forward to a time when everything is going to be made right. And it's meant to be this motivation for them to follow Jesus. But there is this danger that the disciples are going to forget that before they can get to the end of the story, they have to live through the middle. They have to suffer first. And then glory will come later. And it seems to be something that they didn't quite understand. Look at verse 9, Mark chapter 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matters to themselves, um, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So Jesus tells them to wait. Don't tell anyone about this. Because there is a specific order to his life. He has to suffer first before the glory comes. 
the disciples, they just got a trailer for the glory, a sneak preview. But that's all it is. It was just a sneak preview. And if the disciples started telling everyone around about the glory of Christ, people were going to miss out on the crucial step in the order. Jesus doesn't want people, including his disciples, to misunderstand his mission on earth. He came to suffer, and he came to die for our sins. So he tells them to wait. Wait until he suffers. Wait until after he has risen from the dead. And the disciples listen, but they don't really understand. It says they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I mean, can you imagine, right? They've just seen God himself in the flesh, the divine Jesus. And now he's talking about rising from the dead. And they must have been confused because in order to rise from the dead, you kind of have to be dead. And that seems like a not good thing for Jesus to go through. And they couldn't understand how that could happen. They do. We just saw you like bathe in holy divine glory. We just saw you hang out with Elijah and Moses. That seems like a pretty good way to end the story. Let's just stop there. But Jesus wants them to understand. It is suffering first, glory later. So they ask him this question. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That seems like a really weird question to ask. Right? And this happens in my family where someone will be talking about one thing and then my kids will just ask questions that seem to have nothing to do with anything, right? So I'll, I don't know, I'll be talking about a story from the Bible, right? And I'll just explain, yeah, so this is what God has done and God is really awesome in this thing. And all of a sudden, Owen raises his hand and thinks like, are dinosaurs real? <laughs> well, yeah, they, they are, buddy, but I don't understand how that has to do with the story. But like, I don't know. But, you know, why do people ask these questions you know, that, that seem to have nothing to do with what is being talked about? Why in the world are the disciples asking about Elijah? Well, they had just seen Elijah. They were coming down from the mountain. They'd just seen Elijah. And it gets them thinking about something. It reminds them of something that they read in the Old Testament. And there's a passage in the book of Malachi. So actually, why don't you guys keep your finger in, in Mark and flip back two books. To, so you, the book before that was Matthew, and then actually you're going to get into the Old Testament, and it's Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, okay? Or as Jared Kira calls it, Malachi, the Italian prophet. So Malachi. And once you get there, look at chapter 4, verse 5. And this is a prophecy that was written 400 years before Jesus came on the scene. And he's talking about this final day when God is going to make everything right. And he says, behold, this is Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Because here's what, they, here's what this means. So they just saw Elijah. And it makes them think, about this Old Testament prophecy that says that before God sets up his kingdom forever, he's going to send someone like the prophet Elijah to kickstart everything and get the ball rolling and get people to repent and turn away from their sins. And so their minds are blown, okay? A lot of stuff is happening, and they're trying to figure out how everything is being connected, okay? So my wife, Jamie, loves puzzles. Do you guys like puzzles? Yeah. They're pretty good? They're all right? I don't understand puzzles, okay? If I wanted a picture of something, 
I would get a whole picture of something. I don't need that picture to be broken up into like a thousand pieces, okay? If I wanted the picture, I'd have the picture, okay? But some people really like puzzles, like my wife, Jamie. And, and what happens with the puzzle? You dump out all the pieces, and you know all the stuff is there. You know everything fits together, but you don't know how. And that's part of the supposed fun of the puzzle, right? It's figuring out how everything fits together. And there are a lot of puzzle pieces here that the disciples are starting to recognize. Okay, this has got Elijah, there's a kingdom, there's Jesus in his glory, but he's going to die and he's going to rise again from the dead. And they're trying to figure out how does all this stuff fit together? How do the puzzle pieces fit? And here's how it fits together. The prophet, like Elijah, was supposed to come and start making things right. So they hear Jesus saying he's going to die and they think, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. We thought God was going to make things better, not worse. In fact, isn't that the whole reason why you showed us your glory, to show us that you were going to make things better? What they want is they want the glory and they don't want the suffering. They want the glory and they don't want the suffering. And Jesus responds to them in verse 12. And he says, that's not an option. It is always suffering first, glory later. He says in verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And here's what Jesus means. He says, you're right. That Old Testament passage you're talking about, yeah, that's the right passage to think about. The Bible does say that someone like Elijah is going to come. The Bible does say that God is going to make everything right. But you're forgetting something that has to happen first. The Son of Man which is Jesus' way of talking about himself. The Son of Man must suffer first. Suffering first, glory later. Jesus is going to come again in glory. He will make everything right. He is going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. But first, he has to die. And the most glorious thing about Jesus is his death. The most glorious thing about Jesus is the fact that he would come and die on a cross because he loves you and wants you to be in a relationship with him and his heavenly father. The most glorious thing about Jesus is that he is inviting you to follow him and have a relationship with him. If you want glory, if you want everything to come, if you want everything to work out in the end in your life, it is only going to come because Jesus suffered first. And this order of suffering first and glory later is not just true for Jesus but it's true for us. And it's true for Jesus' followers. That's what he calls us to do, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. You have to be willing even to suffer in life and even die for him if necessary, and then will come glory. And Jesus says, you want to know who did this perfectly? You want to know who already has done this? He says, I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, who do you think Jesus could be talking about here? Anyone have any ideas? Yeah, Ellen. Himself? himself? Not himself. It's a good, good answer. Yeah. Say again? Moses? No, it wasn't Moses. Can you think of anyone else that has shown up in the Gospel of Mark that came before Jesus, told people to repent, got treated real bad, and lost his head over some stuff. Yeah. Say again? John the Baptist. Awesome. Great answer. That's exactly who he's talking about. Jesus is saying, Elijah, someone like Elijah has already come. 
And the someone is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the prophet like Elijah that was prophesied in Malachi. He is the prophet who came and told people to repent of their sin and turn away from their sin. He prepared the way for Jesus to come. But in the process, he suffered and he died. He died because he was doing what God asked him to do. And Jesus is saying, it's not just true for me that suffering comes first and then glory. It is true for everyone who wants to follow me. If you want to be a Christian, this is what you're signing up for. You're signing up for this pattern of suffering first and glory later. If it was true for Jesus, it's true for us. So the question for us then is, why do we suffer? What does suffering look like as a Christian? Why is it that we have to do this? And I think part of it has to do with the fact that we live in a world that is fundamentally opposed to God. The world is broken and sinful and doesn't want to have anything to do with God. Are there any Dodger fans here? Dodger fans? Awesome. Okay. So I love you, but my team is the San Francisco Giants. Okay. So I grew up in San Francisco. I know, I've lost all credibility with you. Some of you guys are like ready to chuck your pencils at me and stab me in the eye. But I grew up in San Francisco, so I am, they're my team. I'm going to root for them until the day I die. And we will meet in the playoffs. And we'll see how things go from there, Dodger fans. <clears throat> but what happens, right, is like if we have two teams that are diametrically opposed to one another, they hate each other with all of their being, right, then we can expect that we're going to make the other team suffer. Like, I'm, like giants are, the Giants are not trying to go out of their way to make life easy for the Dodgers, and you're not doing the same thing either, right? And so we should expect that if teams are opposed to one another, they're going to make life difficult for one another. And the world, a sinful world that hates God and doesn't want to follow him, we should expect that they want to make life difficult for Christians. We should expect that as we're just trying to live normal Christian lives, that it's going to bring up moments that are hard for us and where we are going to endure suffering for Jesus. When our friends joke about inappropriate things or they use crude or hurtful language and you choose not to, it shouldn't surprise you that you don't feel like you fit in in that conversation. When people say that you're weird because you go to church or you believe in Jesus, because, or because you think that there's a spiritual world beyond the things that you can see. If people think that you're weird because you believe a book that was written thousands of years ago, it shouldn't surprise you because you're playing for a different team. 2 Timothy 3.2 has something really sobering to say. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, not could be, you will be. Because if you're playing for Jesus' team, then you should expect opposition. But the reality is, not just are you playing for Jesus' team, it's the winning team. Because you know that if Jesus says to follow him, everything will work out in the end. Now I'm going to start wrapping things up here. I've known I've talked for too long already. And I realize that talking about suffering to middle schoolers can feel like kind of a scary thing, right? It's kind of this, man, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to make it through middle school, right? I'm just trying to figure out a study for this test. I don't know how to deal with acne. I don't know how to deal with the fact that my voice is changing. I don't know. That's the kind of suffering that you guys are thinking about. And all this talking about living for Jesus and dying for him, it seems really scary. It seems really, really crazy. But here's my encouragement to you, that living for Jesus is made up of the small everyday choices you make to live for him. 
a whole life of living for Jesus is made up of tiny little moments of living for Jesus. It's the moments of you fighting your sin where you just, just are telling yourself, I just, I will not give in to this sin. I want to follow Jesus instead. It's those moments when you say, you know what, I'd rather do what someone else does. Even though I really want to do this thing, I'm going to give up my preferences and lay aside my selfishness. It's choosing to serve your family and not give attitude to your parents when they ask you to clean up your room. It's a choice to lay aside the phone so you can read scripture. It's the discipline that, yeah, I'm just going to get up a little bit earlier so I can pray. It's deciding to come to church even when you don't feel like it. It's asking for help from other Christians. All these little choices that you make, these little moments, are what will make up a life devoted to following Jesus. So I actually remember preaching this passage before and preaching this story when I was the youth pastor years ago when we were going through the Gospel of Mark. And you know who was in my youth group at the time? It was Nicole and it was Sammy. Where's Sammy at? Anyone else here was in youth group when I was the youth pastor? Just those two right now. The other people that are here are um, Justin. And, and so I remember preaching this passage, right, and wondering, like, man, what in the world does it look like for this weirdo Justin, you know, to, to, to be a follower of Jesus and, and suffer and choose to give up his life for him? I don't have no idea what it's going to look like for him. But you know what it looked like? It was just little everyday choices to choose to follow Jesus to the point where here he is now, where he's helping out with high school ministry. And Sammy and Nicole are helping out in junior high ministry. It's because, and you might think, it's like, I have no idea how they got to be this point where I just, you know, they're following Jesus so hard. It's just because they made the little decisions and the little moments to follow Jesus. I was looking through my desk the other day and I found something. And I found this. So this, this is Pastor Gavin's handwriting. Because Pastor Gavin was a youth leader, was a youth pastor before me, okay? And one of the things that he used to ask the youth to do was to write letters to themselves. And just to kind of reflect on like what God was doing in their lives. And when I became the youth pastor, he gave me a stack of letters. He said, I want you to give these letters to these students. It was written, these were written in June of 2009. Were you guys born then? Oh my goodness, okay. So some, oh my, yeah, so... This letter was written in June of 2009. And Pastor Gavin said, I want you to give this to them in June of 2010. I'm a little late. Because I just found them. But I gave one to Nicole earlier this week. And I think what will, and I think what will, I am pretty sure Sammy, that what you find in this envelope is just the testimony of Sammy just trying to be faithful in the little things as a junior hire. And it's just those moments of being faithful that led her to where she is now of a lifetime of following Jesus. So I realized that for you, some of this stuff might feel like, man, this is just too crazy, it's just too big. But I want to encourage you just to live out those little moments to follow Jesus, and that will lead to a lifetime of following Jesus. So let me pray for you, and we'll end things here. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to look at your word and to see Jesus for who he really is. God himself, the point of everything, and the one that we really need. And God, I pray that as we entrust ourselves to Jesus, that he would prove to be more than enough and that we would have the courage and resolve to follow Jesus in the big things and in the hard things. I pray for these junior hires that they would have courage, that they would have a boldness, and they would have a love for Jesus because of what he has done for them. God, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.